Hi, and welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast. We have some exciting news we want to share with you, and that's that Rob's newest book, The Jordan River Rules, is finally here. It's been 20 years since The Red Sea Rules was published, and since then, it's helped hundreds of thousands of people through all kinds of crises. People write letters all the time to us about what they've been through. Now, he's written this book, The Jordan River Rules, to talk about how the swollen waters of the Jordan River were held back. This time, not to help the Israelites escape the enemy, but to open the path to the promised land, a path to victory. So maybe in your life, you're shifting gears. Maybe you're accelerating or slowing down. You wonder what's next. Our lives tend to move forward in different stages. So maybe you're figuring out post-pandemic life, or perhaps you've just graduated or had a baby or a change in career, or even you've lost a loved one. The message of the Jordan River Rules is that everything in your life so far has been God's preparation for stronger days ahead. Now it's time to move onward toward all the promises he has in store for you. You can search on Amazon for the Jordan River Rules to find the book and its accompanying study guide, which is meant for individual or group study. Or you can visit robertjmorgan.com. Use the code JRRPODCAST to save 10% off the book, the study guide, or the online study videos. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Well, hello there and welcome back. Good morning, afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are. I want to thank you for joining me for this podcast. And before we get started, I just want to direct your attention to a couple of books that we have either out or coming out that may be very helpful to you. The book that is currently available for pre-order is called Great is Thy Faithfulness. And it's a book of 52 Bible verses about the faithfulness of God. It's a gift book, which means it has a very beautiful cover, beautiful interior pages. It has a ribbon in it. It's got a place at the front for you to give it to somebody. And it's just designed not only for your own enjoyment, but to give as gifts to others. And if you wanted to pre-order some Christmas presents, then just go to your favorite book distributor and pre-order the book Great is Thy Faithfulness by Robert J. Morgan. And while you're there, check out my other books, including the newly published Jordan River Rules. And I appreciate your following our ministry and your support. And I only trust that all of this is a great blessing to you. Today in our podcast episode call or our series of episodes called Unstoppable. We're coming to the subject of spiritual warfare in the book of Acts chapter 19. It seems to me that there is heightened interest in the subject of spiritual warfare in these days. I had a friend telling me the other day that this is a product that sells, as it were, in the bookstores right now because people seem to be so interested in it. And after all, look at what we are facing in our world right now. How else do we explain this headlong plunge into Marxism that seems to be enchanting our cultural elites now, despite the centuries-long horrendous record of failure and atrocities and cataclysms that have befallen entire nations. How do we explain the societal determination to massacre millions of innocent preborn babies? And when it comes to the atrocities of war, how do we explain the supernatural evil of groups like ISIS and of terrorist organizations? And then there is the sexual perversions that are dominating our culture with many of our educators wanting to make sure that even our youngest children are acclimated 
acclimated to these debaucheries. How do we account for all of that? These things seem to go beyond the human capacity for evil as great as it is, and what we are seeing today, I believe, is supernatural evil. And the Bible's primary laboratory for studying this subject is found where? In the ancient city of Ephesus, both in the account of Paul's ministry in that city and in the letter that he later wrote to the Ephesians. So today, as we said last time, we are in Acts chapter 19, and Paul began preaching and evangelizing this port city. You can visit the magnificent ruins now along the Turkish coast. And he began with 12 men, stayed there for three years and discipled them. He had opposition from Jewish officials, and yet he was successful. He planted a church which evangelized widely after his departure and took the gospel in a missionary way to every corner of the globe. You really can't miss the parallel between what Jesus did and the Gospels and what Paul did in the book of Ephesus. We dealt with that a little bit next last week. Now, let's pick up the story with verse 8. Acts chapter 19, verse 8, if you are able to look at your Bible, and it begins by saying that as Paul really got into his ministry in this great city, he entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them, so that is some of the synagogue members, became obstinate. They refused to believe and they publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years. Later, Paul tells us that the entire ministry in Ephesus lasted for three years, but his lecture hall ministry lasted for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, that is the text that begins with verse 8, goes through verse 10, and it represents the single longest period of stable ministry in the revealed life of the Apostle Paul. And as a result of all of this, the church in Ephesus became the strongest model for a local church in the entire New Testament. The lecture hall of Tyrannus, or Tyrannus, I say Tyrannus, was a public auditorium, and some of the old texts, some of the uh, various uh, old Greek texts that we have of this passage say that Paul taught there every day from 11 a.m. until 4 p.m. It might, apparently it was owned and operated by a local teacher named Tyrannus, or it could have been an auditorium that was named for this man. But apparently Paul was able to rent this space, as typically they did in those days, and he in effect opened a seminary. I happen to believe that every local church should have some form of the school of Tyrannus. Every church should have a way of providing Bible college level teaching for believers at a time when it's convenient for them so that they can really learn the kinds of things that I learned in Bible college and in seminary, which have stayed with me all of my life and on which I am building, hopefully, my knowledge of the Bible. We need to do more than just give people a 30-minute homily on Sunday mornings. We need to actually teach them the kinds of things that Paul might have been teaching in this school for two years. And for the Ephesians, the most convenient time for them to come was in the afternoons. According to Witherington, 
In the Greco-Roman world, the typical worker school day took advantage of the cooler morning hours and usually ran from dawn until about 11 a.m. So people would get up, they would go to school, they would go to class very early, they would go to their work very early, and then when the heat of the day began, about 11 a.m., they would knock it off for lunch, maybe for a siesta, and they would take the afternoon off. The primary work day was in the morning. So the hall, the lecture hall, would have been free beginning at 11 o'clock. And the same is true for Paul's listeners. They would have been available starting around 11 o'clock or noon to come. And so Paul lectured there in this auditorium like a professor or like an academic would have done. uh, And he did that for two years. But now I want to show you how Luke devotes the rest of this chapter to various evolving issues of spiritual warfare. So let's go to the next verses, 11 and 12. Here we see that God gave Paul abilities that we don't have him seeing in other places, at least not to this extent, uh, to perform miracles, to have authority over evil spirits. Verse 11 says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. So just think about this. If somebody had a rag and they brushed against Paul, or maybe they brought it to him at the school of Tyrannus, they would uh, rub it against him, take it back to their uh, their loved one who was sick at home, wipe their brows with it, and that person would be healed. I don't think there's anything else quite like this in the Bible. Why is it that Paul had the ability to do truly extraordinary miracles, even through a piece of cloth? Why is it that he had such authority over the unclean spirits? And the answer is because of the nature of the city of Ephesus. This was a city enthralled with magic and with the magic arts. It was a city full of invisible evil forces, and so God gave the Apostle Paul authority over them. Paul's success, especially over over these evil spirits, was so amazing that some Jewish exorcists tried to duplicate what he was doing. And I want to go on and read this, but beforehand, let me give you the background. I think there is a certain amount of background here that is essential for understanding not only the passages we're coming to in Acts chapter 19, but also the epistle of Ephesians. And let me also say that apart from the Bible, my primary source for studying this has been a book entitled Power and Magic, the Concept of Power in Ephesians by a scholar named Clinton E. Arnold, A-R-N-O-L-D, and published by Baker Books. This was recommended to me a number of years ago by my friend Jim Weaver, who actually was the publisher for this book when he was at Baker, and he later became my publisher at Thomas Nelson for a series of projects. And so I've been acquainted with this book for a long time, but I've just recently gone through it again in preparation for this podcast. Power and Magic is a very important work on the background and the contents of the book of Ephesians, and I would recommend it to you. I'm not sure how available it is right now, but you can find it. Clinton Arnold is the author. Well, according to Arnold and also to others, the city of Ephesus was the capital of magic and the center of the occult for all of Asia Minor 
for all of that eastern part of the world. It was a city filled with magic, with superstitions, with evil spirits, and with all kinds of demonic forces. Now, when I use the word magic, I don't mean performances of illusion, but I mean dark and demonic powers. Arnold defines magic as, quote, the belief that supernatural powers could be harnessed and used by appropriating the correct technique. It was a method, he said, of manipulating supernatural powers to accomplish certain tasks. Now, another authority that I, I checked uh, put it this way, of all the ancient Greco-Roman cities, Ephesus, was by far the most hospitable to magicians, sorcerers, and charlatans of all sorts. We know this in part from the discovery of the magical papyra, specifically the Ephesia Grammata, which is literally the Ephesian letters which are associated with the goddess Artemis of Ephesus. I don't have time to go into the nature of this goddess. She is referred to here in chapter 19 of the book of Acts. But her temple in Ephesus was a wonder of the world, and the entire city operated in her shadow, and it created an atmosphere for the magical arts to thrive. Now, in antiquity, we now know there were many books of magic spells and magical charms. The best-known extant papyra about this are called the Greek magical papyra, which had their roots in ancient Egypt. Papyra, the word papyra refers to an ancient Egyptian form of paper. It was made out of reeds, and many of our very old documents are papyra, which were preserved in the heat and the dryness of the Egyptian sands, and now we have them. So the Greek magical papyra contained many magical spells and formulas and rituals, and these books spread throughout the entire Greco-Roman world, and these magic formulas influenced every part of daily life for the residents of Ephesus and for much of Asia, and apparently led to this Ephesian book of magic, the Ephesian Grammata, or the Ephesian letter on magic, and to many other books and scrolls that were filled with incantations and spells. And as we'll also see later in Acts chapter 19, wow, there's just so much here, the new Christians in Ephesus burned all their magical books and paraphernalia, and as people came to Christ all around the Roman Empire, those people also burned these evil books of demonism and magic. And as a result, the magical writings around the Roman Empire were forced underground and were kept in secret for hundreds of years. The magic arts became mysterious and cryptic and esoteric for hundreds of years. You can sort of get a glimpse of this on a lot of television uh, dramas or movies, even the Disney dramas with their witches that have their incantations and their hidden and secret spells. It all comes from the fact that the Christian uh, influence in the, uh, in the Roman Empire uh, destroyed so many of these documents and drove the others underground. And for about 1,800 years, magic was a dark, hidden movement that terrorized the world with fears of evil spirits. And then in the 1800s, an Armenian man named Jean d'Anastasi traveled through the world locating and purchasing collections of ancient Egyptian papyra that had been discovered. 
been discovered. It was discovered in the excavations of these early archaeologists in the 1800s. So he shipped these to Europe and he sold them in places like the British Museum in the Louvre in Paris. And the documents set in these museums and libraries for another century before scholars really begin to study and translate them. And somewhere around the year 1900, some of these materials were published. And in the meantime, other discoveries were made. And so we now have a large body of ancient material, which helps us understand the demonic hold that magic had over the world of Paul's day, especially in the city of Ephesus, the home of the temple of the goddess Artemis. Now, I've read a few samples from the magical papyra. You can find it online, really, an English translation of it. And I'm going to give you just a couple of elements of it. So uh, here is a magic spell that, that contains, this is from the magical papyra that the people of Ephesus would have known. And it contains a formula for invisibility, if you want to be invisible. It says, and I'm quoting directly from the ancient magical papyra, take fat or an eye of a night owl and a ball of dung rolled by a beetle and oil of an unripe olive and grind them all together until smooth and smear your whole body with it and say to Heloise, the goddess, I adjure you by your great name, and then there's a long series of gibberish, magical words. Um, and if you do it correctly, then according to this spell, you will be invisible in the presence of any person until sunset. So that was one of the spells. Here's another one. To achieve a good memory, uh, then according to this magical formula, you write on a leaf of a particular cinquefoil, whatever that is, the following character. And there is something that looks a little bit like an L in script form. You write it with myrrh ink, and you keep it in your mouth while you sleep. And if so, then magically that will enhance your memory. Well, there were all of these spells, and there was the fearfulness of evil spirits and this pervasive atmosphere of magic and the invisible forces engulfed Ephesus, and it seeped into the Jewish quarter. In fact, there were elements of Judaism everywhere that were caught up in matters of angels and demons and speculations as to the nature of the supernatural realm. You may remember that back in Acts chapter 13, Paul encountered a Jewish sorcerer on the, in the uh, island of uh, Crete or rather the island of Cyprus. So there were a lot of Jewish sorcerers. There were certain elements of Judaism very vulnerable to syncretism, that is, to combining their Jewish beliefs with these magical practices. And so we run into some of that here in Acts 19. Let's pick up the reading at verse 13. It says, Some Jews who went about driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They had seen Paul cast out demons, and he was doing it so much better than they were. So they said, they, this, is, this was the, the spell or the formula they used. In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know. But who are you? 
Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all and gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Well, it's a comical scene, but this event marked a turning point for the gospel in Ephesus. The next verse, verse 17 says, When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now, these magical papyri and these books of magic that were burned were very valuable. Some of them were probably very old, very rare. People had paid a great deal of money for them. And also, there might have been many, many of them, maybe thousands of them, so this is a fantastic sum, 50,000 silver coins. It may have amounted, some people say, to a million dollars, and some people say to several million dollars in today's terms. We aren't really exactly sure how to translate the sum, but it would have amounted to 50,000 silver coins. And so they burned the, this magical paraphernalia and all of the scrolls because they were detaching themselves from the evil spirits and deciding instead to follow him who is over all of the spiritual realm, and that would be Jesus Christ. Now, another thing also happened. Since Ephesus was the worldwide center for the worship of the goddess Artema, there were statues, little figurines of her everywhere for sale, and each one had been handmade by artisans. I'm sure they were made in molds, but just like you can go to Disneyland and find Mickey Mouse everywhere. Or once I went to Assisi in Italy, uh, the hometown of St. Francis, and there were probably a million little figurines and images and pictures and bobbleheads of St. Francis there. Uh, this is the way it was with Artemis. I don't really have time to go into who she was or what she looked like. You can look up pictures of her statue here. But she dominated, and her re religion dominated uh, Ephesus and set the stage, created the atmosphere for all of this magic. So, uh, so we have these uh, guilds, uh, these craftsmen, who made a great deal of money. People would come from all over the world as part of the festivals and the worship of Artemis. But suddenly the gospel came in with this supernatural power, and so many of the Ephesians turned to the Lord during Paul's three years of ministry there that the sales of these figurines dropped dramatically, and that's what led to the riot described at the end of the chapter. So you can read about that riot. I'm not going to take time with it, but uh, there were certain craftsmen who stirred up the crowd and said, if we don't do something about this, then... Paul is going to completely rob us of all of our prophets, and the goddess Artemis will be dishonored. And so the whole city came together in a theater, shouting for hours, great as uh, Artemis, the god of the Ephesians. And you can actually go to this theater. I'll never forget being in that theater. The ruins of it are still standing there. It's magnificent. You can walk up and sit in a uh, one of the higher seats and look down and see the stage. And and um, 
turning in my Bible and reading and knowing I was in the very site where this particular thing happened. It was absolutely extraordinary. And so, uh, so because of Paul's supernatural power and the extraordinary power of the gospel and the number of people who were coming to Christ and those who were breaking free from the control of the magicians and the demons and the spiritual forces. Because of all of that, Ephesus was threatened economically, leading to this riot. And the riot was the precipitating event for Paul leaving town. He understood that if he stayed any longer, then there might be a widespread persecution against the Christians, but he had been there for three years. He had gotten the church into a strong place. It had great leadership. He was envisioning now his fourth missionary tour. He was ready to leave, and so he quietly uh, greeted all of the Christians one final time, slipped out of town, but the ministry continued, and he later wrote the book of Ephesians. Now, I'm going to stop at this point today because I've covered a lot of material. Um, but I want next week to go right into the book of Ephesians, sort of as an excursus or, um, or a, a parenthesis, because I want to show you how this emphasis on power and magic and evil forces and principalities and the world of darkness and the one who is the prince of the power of the air, how when you understand it against the backdrop, of the city of Ephesus and what was happening there and the nature of Paul's ministry there. Suddenly it brings the, the little letter, the sixth chapter letter of Ephesians into focus in a powerful way and it enables you to understand the nature of spiritual warfare with a better understanding of the context of that book because Ephesians is the Bible's handbook on spiritual warfare. And I'm going to show you some of the passages, and the reason is because it was written to the very city, which in the Bible was the center of all of the magic arts that dominated the Greco-Roman world, the city of Ephesus. So spiritual warfare is very real. But as Christians, we have been delivered out of the realm of the prince of the power of the air, we have been delivered into the realm of the one who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We have the authority of Jesus Christ behind us. We have his love beneath us. We have his hand of protection around us. And we are in a battle zone here on this planet. But the Bible says we can reign in life through one Christ Jesus. The Bible says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But I want you to remember that when it comes to the whole subject of spiritual warfare, well, we can learn from Genesis to Revelation about it. But especially Acts chapter 19, the background story of the founding of the church of Ephesus, the center, the capital of magic in the Greco-Roman world, and then the ensuing letter to the Ephesians, which is the Bible's handbook on spiritual warfare, which we'll get to next week. Please share this podcast with other people and let other people know about my uh, website. It's robertjmorgan.com. Check out our resources there. And also, as I said, this new book that is available now for pre-order, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And next week, Lord willing, 
we will pick up the story by looking at how spiritual warfare is presented against the backdrop of the setting of the city of Ephesus and this incredible little book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me. This podcast is produced by Joshua Rowe and Clearly Media. The music is by Elijah Rowe. And for more information, check out our website, robertjmorgan.com. Thank you for listening, and may the Lord be with you until we meet again.